You can turn to Ephesians chapter 5. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Blake. I'm the teaching pastor over at the Southwood campus. It's, it's great to switch it up every once in a while with Brian and get to come over here and, and speak to you guys. Actually, one of my favorite things about Creekside opening is now there'll be three campuses. So we get to hop around all the time. It's really fun to come speak to a group that I haven't seen in a little while. Well, a few weeks ago, after Brian and I spoke on the adoption of God, that he adopts us into his family as a free gift, I got a great question from a student. After service, a student came up to me, and, and after I had preached about how God accepts us, and, and he gives us redemption, and he, and he loves us for free, adoption into his family is a free gift. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to earn it. A student came up, and he asked me this great question. He said, okay, If we become a child of God by grace alone, if it's just totally a free gift, then where does obedience fit in? It's a very perceptive question. It's an excellent question because the student recognized that that in reality, if you think about it, every religion on earth commands obedience. Every religion commands obedience. So let's take the big ones. Whether you're a Muslim or, or a Jew or Hindu or Christian, you are expected by your God or your gods to live in a certain way. There's some things you should do. There's some things you shouldn't do. That's the same in every religion. Now, it may be different things you should do, different things you should not do. But, but all religions command obedience. That, that's the same in all religions. But what I want to show you this morning is that the motivation is very different. The motivation for obedience in Christianity is radically different than the motivation for obedience in every other religion. So so let's ask, let's think about it for a moment. In every other religion, why must you follow the rules? In every other religion, why do you have to obey? Well, ultimately, to earn acceptance and approval from your God. That's the motivation. That's the reason you got to obey. So, so a Muslim practices the five pillars, confesses Allah, prays, gives alms, fasts, and goes on Mecca or goes on pilgrimage to Mecca also that, that he or she can earn the approval, the acceptance of Allah. A Jew goes to synagogue, practices the Torah, keeps the traditions of his faith so that, so that he can have acceptance and approval from God. In Hinduism, you actually have lots of different paths you can choose from depending upon which God you will follow. But once you have made your choice, you choose a path, you have to stick to that path. You have to follow that path to earn acceptance and approval from the God you've chosen to worship. So in, in every other religion, you obey, you keep the rules so that you can earn approval and acceptance from your God, but not in Christianity. How does obedience fit in to Christianity? Why must you obey in Christianity? Look at chapter five, verse one. Here's what Paul says. Why must we obey in Christianity? Verse one, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. It's one sentence that comes in two parts. And if you can understand how the two parts of that sentence relate to one another, then you will understand the key to Christianity. Because I want you to notice that Paul does not say, therefore be imitators of God so that you may become beloved children. That's how every other religion works. You you must obey the rules. You must follow your God. You must imitate your God so that you can become his beloved children. That's how every other religion works, but that's not how Christianity works. Notice Paul says, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. 
little preposition, just two letters, A and S, makes all the world of difference. You can hang the entire Christian faith on that one two-letter word. It's the word as, as beloved children. What that's telling you is that you are already God's child. You are already a child of God. You do not have to to work to become a child of God. You do not have to earn your way into God's family. Adoption is a free gift. It it comes to you out of grace. It's, It's for free. There's nothing you have to do to become a child of God because Jesus already did everything that's required for us to become children of God. Jesus did all the work. Paul actually talks about that in verse two. Look at verse two for a moment. He says, and walk in love, we'll talk about that command in a moment, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Paul's talking about when Jesus went to the cross. He he lived a perfectly righteous life and then he took our sins upon himself and died as a sacrifice, an offering to God to pay the penalty that we owed. He paid our debt so that we could be forgiven given as a free gift and then he rose from the dead so that we could have eternal life by grace alone you become a child of God because of what Jesus did for you there's no work you have to do adoption is an absolutely free gift all you have to to do if you will in Christianity is just say yes You just got to look at God and say, yes, God, I want that forgiveness and that life and that adoption into your family that Jesus earned for me when he died on the cross and rose from the grave. I want that. The moment that you say to God, yes, I want that, you become part of God's family now and forever. You enter into the family of God as an absolutely free gift. So in Christianity, obedience is not how you become a child of God. That's by grace alone. But, but, now that you're a child of God, maybe obedience is how you earn more of God's love. Because look around, there's a lot of us. God has a lot of children. And so maybe if you obey God better than I obey God, maybe God will love you more than he loves me. Because let's be honest, there's a whole lot of human families that operate that way. A whole lot of parents out there that give the majority of their love and affection to whichever child is obeying on that particular day. And so maybe that's how God works. You, you obey and you get more of God's love. Just one problem. There's this one little word that we read in verse one, beloved, beloved. It's an interesting word. You study it in in Greek in the first century and you will find it was almost always used of an only child who was the object, the recipient of all of his or her parents' love and devotion and affection. And what Paul wants us to understand is that you are so loved by God your Father that it is as if you were his only child. Now God has a lot of kids, but he has infinite love. And so he is able to love each and every one of us as if we were his only child and still his love is not stretched thin. So we're not in competition with one another for God's love. You're not obeying the rules so you can earn more of God's love as if God had a limited quantity of love to go around. Now you are so intensely, absolutely, infinitely loved by God that it is as if you were God's only child. 
Okay, so in Christianity, obedience is not how you earn your way into God's family, and it's not how you earn God's love. It's not how you make God like you. He already loves you infinitely. That's not what obedience is about. In Christianity, you become part of God's family, and you are infinitely loved by God as an absolutely free gift. So what is the point of obedience in the Christian life? If it's not how you get into the family, if it's not how you get God's love, what is the point of obedience? It's right there at the beginning of verse one. As beloved children, be imitators of God. Obedience in the Christian life is how we become like our dad. All the commands that you'll find in the Bible, those commands are are there not to give you a path to earn more of God's love. No, his love is a free gift. All of those commands are there to teach you how to become like your dad, how to grow up to become like God. Paul says we're to be imitators of God. In Greek, it's mimetize. That's the, the Greek word from which we get the English word mimic. Paul is challenging us to, to mimic God. to to think what he thinks, to say what he says, to to do what he does. That's the, the goal of your life is to imitate God so that you grow up to be like your dad. That's actually how God designed children to grow. If you think about it, if you, if you have little children or had little children, you, you've seen that God designed imitation into their nature. Little children come into the world imitating everything that they can see. So they learn to to walk and talk by imitating, by mimicking their parents. That's how they grow up. That's how they become like us. Now, if you're a parent of young kids, sometimes that causes some problems. My kids, Luke and Gracie, were about 18 months old. They're twins. When I came home one day and I kissed my wife on the lips, and so they promptly turned to one another and kissed each other on the lips. And we had to put an end to that and explain, no, no, you only do that when you're married and you're not going to marry each other, so no doing that. Um, and the more recently, uh, my son, he's five now, this summer, he was out with me while I was washing my car and I was detailing it and I had the hood up and I was working really carefully and then I had to run inside for about five minutes. And And while I was gone, Luke grabbed the bottle of soap and he squirted that soap into every orifice he could find, all over my brakes, into the locks, into the engine bay, all over the engine, into every hole he could find. And and soap and engines don't mix well. So it was not a good day for me, but I can't blame him. Because that's what little kids do. That's how God designed them. He was just imitating his dad. That's how God designed us to grow. We mimic our parents. We, we think what they think. We say what they say. We do what they do. That's how we become like them. So God designed you to become like him because that's actually why you were made. Let me take you back to the very beginning. Genesis chapter one. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. You were made in the image of God. And the image of God, it just means that, that you were created to become like God, to look like God. I like to think of it as, as God created within every human being a mirror, a mirror that is designed to reflect his glory and his character to the world. But there's a problem. You know what happened a couple chapters after this verse, Adam and Eve chose sin. And the moment that they chose sin, that mirror in each of us shattered. It's still there, but it's, it's broken. It doesn't reflect God's character very well anymore. It has to be repaired. 
And so God begins to repair that mirror inside every human being. And that repair begins the moment that you trust in Jesus. When you say yes to God's gift of eternal life through faith in Jesus, God begins to fix the mirror, but that's only the first step. The rest of your life, God is repairing that mirror. He's fixing it piece by piece so that you can better reflect his his character and his glory to the watching world. And that's what obedience is about. All the commands of scripture, God is teaching you how to be like him. He's fixing the mirror piece by piece so that you look to the world more and more like God. Paul puts it this way in the book of Romans chapter 8. He says, for those whom he foreknew, that is those whom God knew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, that is Jesus, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. What Paul is saying is that God knew you before time began and he chose you individually by name to become like Jesus, to be conformed to the likeness, to the character of Jesus, the son of God. Now, now Jesus is God. We're never going to be God. But in a very real sense, Jesus is our older brother and our goal in life is to grow up to be like him. God wants us to look up to our older brother and and imitate him, follow him, become more like him. That's the goal of your life is to imitate God so that you become more like your dad. That's what obedience is about in the Christian life. Okay, but then you might ask, we're to imitate God, we're to follow God, but what in particular does God want us to imitate? Because if you read the Bible, there's a whole lot of stuff that God says. And there's a whole lot of stuff that God does and some of it we can imitate and some of it we can't imitate. So what does God want us to focus on? What in particular does he want us to mimic? Well, that's what Paul covers in the next few verses. He lays out for us the two most important attributes of God that we as God's children should imitate. These are the two big ones. If you will follow these, if you will mimic these, if you'll imitate these two things, you will go a great distance in becoming like God and imitating him. So what are we to imitate? Well, first thing we're to imitate that we see in our heavenly father is his love. The first thing that you're called to imitate is God's love. Look again at verse two. Paul said, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us and an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Walk in love. Anytime you see that verb walk, it's talking about a habit. Paul's saying that your habit in life, how you treat every person all the time should be characterized by love. But, but what does the word love mean? We live in a culture that does not know the answer to that question. We live in a, in a time where love has become just an emotion, a, a feeling. But you read the Bible and you discover that's not love. Love is not an emotion. Now, love may be accompanied by emotions, but it is not defined by an emotion. Biblical love, God-like love, is a choice. It is a choice to seek the highest good in the one you love, even at great personal cost. Love is a choice to to so look up to the good of the other that you're willing to lay down your life for them. That's the kind of love that was expressed for us by Jesus Christ on the cross. When he gave his life, it's a costly love. It's a sacrificial love that seeks the good of the one loved. 
So if you want to know what love is, if you want to show someone what real love is, don't go to the sappiest Hollywood romance you can find. That's not love. Love is right there. That, that's what love is. Love is the cross. That is the single greatest expression of love in the history of the human race. A man who laid down his life for those that he loved. That's love. We're called to imitate, to mimic, to express that same kind of costly love towards everyone we meet. To follow, to imitate, to mimic God's love. So that's the first attribute that Paul calls us to practice. You actually see it throughout scriptures, not just Paul, but John in 1 John 4 says, Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God for God is love. Your father is love. His character, his, his, his being is defined by love. So we as his children should become loving all the time in every way. To know God is to love more like God. And so that's the first attribute, love. We're to imitate our Father's love. Second, we're to imitate our Father's holiness. Look with me at verse three. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. Paul's talking about holiness. And and when you're talking about holiness of of a human being, of, of a person, holiness means separation from the sinful ways of this world. Separation from sin and and holiness from sin refers both to our speech and our behavior. We're we're to be holy both in our words and in our deeds. Paul talks about both of those. In verse 3, he starts with holy behavior. What does holy behavior look like? Well, holiness in your actions means that your behavior is totally free of of immorality. Immorality. It refers to, to any kind of sex outside of marriage. That'd be fornication, adultery, homosexual behavior, any of that is, is forbidden. Impurity, that's a bigger word. Impurity is really broad. It means any behavior that defiles you before God. That would certainly include any sexual immorality, but it also biblically it includes things like lying or deceiving other people. It's super broad, almost any form of sin. Uh, third, greed. Greed's really easy to understand. Greed is biblically the exact opposite of love. Okay, so love is to give, greed is to take. Greed means that you're trying to take something that is not yours or you're refusing to share something that is yours. And we're called to live a life that is absolutely free of immorality, impurity, and greed. Okay, so we're to be holy in our behavior. Second, we're to be holy in our speech. Everything we say must be holy. So our speech must be free of filthiness. Filthiness means any kind of speech that defiles you. It would include obscenities, cursing, crass jokes, any of that kind of stuff. Our our speech is to be free of silly talk. That word's a little harder to find, harder to wrap your mind around. It appears to be any time that you are uh, voicing a foolish opinion that doesn't line up with truth. Our speech, third, it should be free of coarse jesting. That one's really easy to understand. It means cutting someone down. So, so ridicule or sarcasm, you're, you're cutting someone down to make yourself look funny or feel better. Okay, so those three words, they're actually, they're really easy to see. If you want to see an illustration of those three words, just go to the internet and look at the comments on any news article. And you'll see all three of those. Easily half of what's on the internet and half of what's on TV is those three words. 
Okay, but notice it's, it's not enough for God just for us not to say bad things. To be holy in speech means that you say something good, specifically at the end of the verse. What is it good you're supposed to speak? You're supposed to give thanks. People are, who are, are holy in their speech are grateful people. They're just walking around all day giving thanks to other people, giving thanks to God. They're constantly expressing their gratitude for all the good that God has done in their lives. It's holy speech. It's speech that's full of gratitude. We're to be holy in, in all of our speech and in all of our behavior. Peter put it this way, 1 Peter chapter 1. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. You notice it says, in all of your behavior. Not just at church on Sunday mornings. Not just at work, not just at school, not just in public, but at all times, even if you are alone, even if you are online anonymously, still you must be holy because your God is holy at all times. You're to be holy at all times, just like your dad is holy at all times. So what Paul is, is showing us, these two primary attributes that we're to seek as we, as we try to imitate God, as we try to grow up to be like our dad, love and holiness. You must have both of these. You must hold on to, to both of these. Paul's not giving us a list that you choose your favorite from. You can't look up at those and say, well, I really like the idea of love, not so much holiness, so I'm going to be loving and not worry about the other one. It doesn't work that way. If you're going to have either of them, you have to have both of them. Paul's challenging us to to grasp both love and holiness because you must have both. You can't just have one. Let me me show you that if, if you are all holiness and no love, well, you're just a very unpleasant person to be around. We all have known people like that. Those are Christians who define their worth by all the bad things they don't do. And, and that's really what they want you to know about them is all the bad stuff that the world does that they don't do. These are the kind of Christians who are always outraged by, by all the sin that they see in the world and in the church. These are the Christians that cable news likes to call and get an opinion from every time Hollywood puts out a new Bible movie. So Noah comes out, these are the guys they're gonna call because they're just outraged about that movie or they're outraged about some new law that's been passed that could allow someone somewhere to sin. They're just always, outraged that the world is not living up to their standard of holiness. What they fail to understand is that they worship a God who is not always outraged when he looks at the world. When God looks down at this world with all of its sin and all of its evil and all of its mess, what he feels for this world is not outrage. What does God feel? Go to the most famous verse in the whole Bible, John three sixteen. for God so loved the world. When he looks at this world with all of its mess, still he feels love, so much love that he sent his own son. First Timothy chapter two, what does God desire for this world? He desires the salvation of all men, even those making horrible, evil decisions. He doesn't want their destruction. He wants their salvation because he loves them. It is not enough to have only holiness and no love. Holiness without love goes bad on you and makes you a very ungodly person. You can't have just holiness and not love. But on the flip side, 
You can't have just love and no holiness because love without holiness is not love. Let let me help you understand that. I I have two kids, Luke and Gracie. Luke's five now, but when he was two years old, my, my son developed a fascination for electrical outlets because I told him that, that these little holes in the wall of every room, power comes out of them. And he thought that sounded like magic. What little boy is not going to just desperately want to see that power, that electricity that, that is here in this little hole? And so Luke would go around the room trying to stick his finger into every outlet, or, or if not his finger, then a toy or a spoon or anything he could find. And so I had to get covers and cover every outlet, and I had to teach my boy not to touch them. And when he disobeyed and tried to touch an outlet, I had to discipline him. Now, why did I do that? Is it because I'm mean? Is it because I'm cruel? Is it because I like to discriminate against children who happen to like to touch electrical outlets? No, it's because I love him. To love someone is to protect them from harm. If I had told Luke, hey buddy, I love you, just go for it, touch it, I want you to have what you desire, none of you would have called me a loving father. That would have been hateful. To love someone is to try to protect them from things that harm them. That's what holiness is about. That's what all the commands in the Bible are about. Why does God tell you, thou shalt not do X? It's not because he's mean. It's not because he's cruel. It's not because he's discriminating against people who happen to like to do that thing. It's because he loves us. Because he's a loving dad. And he knows that sin will ultimately hurt us. That's that's the deal with sin. It's fun for a little while. Ultimately, it hurts you. It devastates you and the people close to you. And God loves you too much to accept, to allow you to do that which hurts you. And so all those commands in scripture, all of those calls to holiness are because you have a dad who loves you too much to call something good that will hurt his children. So it's not enough to have love without holiness because that's not love. Love must be accompanied by holiness. We must have both love and holiness in balance. We must cling to both. And sadly, that that balance of love and holiness is what has tragically been missing for so long in this debate that is consuming our nation over gay marriage. It's, It's in all the newspapers. It's in all the articles. It's huge news that we're all consumed with. So we have to talk about it. We have to talk about this debate that's going on in our nation. Now, I'm not going to talk about any particular laws or court decisions because I'm not a legal expert. I'm not qualified to talk about that. What I'm going to talk about is how we talk about those laws and those court decisions. There's a lot of Christians out there who are all holiness and no love. They're just outraged at what's going on in our country. They're so angry about it and they just want to defeat our enemies. And and what they don't understand is that is not how God looks at this debate. God is not outraged by what's going on in our country. He's not surprised by it. He's not caught off guard by it. He knew it was coming and he's got it under control. He doesn't need our help to fix it. He knew this was gonna happen. And so in this grand debate about gay marriage, we should be the calmest voices in the room. We should be the kindest, most gracious people in the room because we know the God who has it all under control. There is incredible peace that comes in the belief that God is sovereign. 
And so as we enter into this debate, we can be the calmest voices there. We can listen to our opponents. We can seek to understand their position. We can engage charitably with them because we know God's got this. We should never be the ones who are shaming individuals or groups or businesses online. We have no business doing that. That's not what God does. We should be the ones showing grace and kindness even when the other side isn't. Okay, so it's not enough to have all holiness and no love. Must have love. But the other side is just as bad. There's some Christians that in this debate, they're all love and no holiness because they assume wrongly that to love someone means that you must accept as good everything they desire. They can't imagine that it would be possible to love someone and simultaneously tell them that something they desire to do is wrong. But that's a misunderstanding of love. That's not how love works. Love seeks to protect people from harm. And so if you believe that a behavior is destructive, if you believe that a behavior is going to hurt someone and you see someone you love engaging in that behavior, then to love them is to speak up. To love them is to tell them, I I believe that's going to hurt you. Let me help you to turn away from that. Now, as we engage in in that discussion, we're not going to force them to change. They're adults. They get to make their own decision. And as we speak, we're going to speak humbly. Because let's be honest with ourselves. We don't know if we're right. We take this book on faith, not on sight. We don't know that we're right till we see Jesus. And so as we engage in this debate, we engage with humility and charity. We seek to listen and understand. But we must speak. We must engage because we love gay people too much to call something good that we believe will hurt them. That's ultimately what it's all about. Why does the church speak up? Not out of self-righteousness, not out of meanness or cruelty or discrimination, but because we love people too much to call something good that we believe is going to hurt them in the long run. And so in this debate over gay marriage, let us be both loving and holy because our dad is love and holiness. Let's be like him. Let's cling to both. Let's in fact be so loving and so holy that we could say with Paul, in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I exhort you, be imitators of me. Paul was was growing up to be like his father so well. He was imitating, he was mimicking God the father so much that he could look at younger believers and say, do what I do and you'll be doing what God does. Now, I want you to to look at that verse and ask yourself, can you say that about yourself? If you come across a younger believer, person who's just accepted Jesus, just come to trust in him, could you tell that person, imitate me as I imitate our father? If they imitate you, if they mimic you, will they be mimicking God? Parents, this is... This is the litmus test of good parenting right there. If your child grows up to be like you, will they be like God? That's our job as parents. It's a sobering thing to be a parent. 
Because when you're a parent, what that means is that your child is going to learn to follow God by looking at you, by watching you. And so if your child grows up to be like you, will they be like God? Will you have led them towards God's love and God's holiness? As you think about that for yourself, let's, let's get practical here. Let's look at our lives. Let's start with love. As you look at, at every area of your life, are you a good example of God's love? His sacrificial, costly love. How about at home? When you're at home with, with your parents or your roommates or your spouse or your kids, are you an example of God's selfless love? Or you come home from work and school and, and you're just exhausted and you're short with people and you're selfish. Maybe there's a particular thing you can do this week. What will you do this week to be a better example of God's love at home? Maybe you need to do the dishes Maybe you need to help put the kids to bed. Maybe you need to speak kindly to your spouse. Maybe there's some particular way you need to show God's selfless love at home. Or maybe for you, it's not at home that you struggle, it's at work. Maybe you work in a really competitive place where people are always stabbing each other in the back and you don't feel very loved and very supported. How will you be an example of God's love this week in a workplace where people don't like you very much? How will you turn the other cheek? How will you show grace and kindness to a coworker who doesn't like you? Or maybe as you look at your life, love isn't the issue right now. Maybe the issue right now, this week, is holiness. You look at your life and you see some places where you are not living holy as God is holy. Maybe it's in your speech or, or particularly your humor. How do you know if, if your humor is holy? Well, let me be clear. It is possible to be holy and funny at the same time. Bible's actually full of wit and irony because God invented both of them. So, so it's possible to be holy and funny, but it is much harder to be holy and funny than to be obscene and funny. Obscenity, sarcasm, ridicule, those are shortcuts to humor that, that lazy people take. That's how the world does it. That's how they get to funny. It's through obscenity, through sarcasm, through ridicule. That's not okay with God. God wants you to be funny. He wants you to be a lighthearted person, but he wants you to get there in a loving and holy way. So very practically, how do you know if this joke you're about to tell or, or, or write online crosses the line with God or not? Whether it's okay or not. Well, as you're telling a joke, as you're writing the joke, you need to ask yourself, if Jesus showed up right here in the flesh, in the middle of me telling this joke, would I be embarrassed? Okay, now, now let's put on our theology hats for a moment. Let's remember Jesus is God and God is what? Omnipresent. So he's there every time you tell a joke and he sees everything you write online. So he's always there, but just this picture that Jesus shows up in the flesh. You're looking at him in the eyes as you tell this joke. How do you feel? Are you proud of it? Okay, tell it. That's great. Or do you feel embarrassed? you feel embarrassed and you've crossed the line. We need to be thinking, not NSFW, not safe for work, but NSFJ, not safe for Jesus showing up right here, right now. If you would feel embarrassed if Jesus showed up in the middle of your joke or the middle of your online comment, then it's over the line. You can be holy and very funny at the same time, but never take the shortcut through obscenity, ridicule, or sarcasm. Okay, so your speech, your humor, it needs to be holy, but also your behavior. 
How, how is your behavior, as you look at your life, is your behavior free of immorality and impurity and greed? And not just in public, not just when you're at church, not just when you're at work or at school, but, but at home, even when you're alone, even when you're anonymous online, is your behavior holy like your dad is holy? If not, then what are you going to do this week to, to fix that area of your life? Who are you going to confess that sin to? Who's going to start to hold you accountable in that area? What changes are you going to make so that you can be holy in every area of your life? What I want to challenge you to do is whatever it takes this week, whatever it takes to grow in love and holiness so that you can become like your dad. Not so that you can earn his love, not so that you can earn your way into his family because all of that's a free gift. He accepts you and he loves you for free but I want you to do whatever it takes to grow in holiness and in love so that you can grow up to be more like him. You're a child of God. Now it's time to grow up and be like your dad in every way so that you can reflect his love and his holiness to this watching world so that they will be attracted to Jesus Christ, their only hope. So let's turn to our heavenly father and ask him to help us to grow in love and in holiness. Lord, we pray. We pray that your spirit would speak to each of us right now. Lord, I'm sure that every one of us in this room falls short on a regular basis of your love and your holiness. But I pray that your spirit would open our eyes to see some particular place where where we need to be putting in work, some some particular relationship where we need to, to show more love or particular behavior that we need to pull out of our lives. I pray that you would help each of us to see a particular way that we need to grow this week in love and in holiness. And I pray that you would convict us over that, that you would challenge challenge us over that, that you would help us to remember that area that we need to grow in tomorrow morning when we wake up. And I pray that you would help every one of us to do whatever it takes to grow in love and in holiness so that we can be like you. But Father, we we thank you and we praise you that, that as we seek to become more like you, it's not so that you will like us. It's not so that you will call us your children. It's not so that you will love us more. We, we praise you, God, that we were already infinitely loved by you. We praise you that we are already your children now and forever, not because of what we do, but because of what Christ already did for us. We praise you, Lord Jesus, for willingly out of love, giving your life as a sacrifice for our sins. We thank you for making it possible for us to become children of God. And we pray that now as children of God, that you would help us to grow up to be like our dad. We pray that you would fix the mirror within us so that we might reflect his character and his glory to this watching world so that they would be attracted to you, Lord Jesus. We pray all this for your glory and your renown. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. Go this week and become like your dad.